0: Lakeland Trail 478.0. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris ceballero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well, this is it. And once again, ladies and gentlemen, it's time to go Inside EMS, the internationally recognized Inside EMS. And here he is, the man of the hour, too sweet to be sour, and the ladies know he's the man with the power. Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how are you?
1: I'm good, man. Are you auditioning to be a rap star? Yeah, do you
0: like that? Actually, now, let me tell you a little you bit the, about you that. You are the
1: whitest rap star ever.
0: I don't know. I think I'm a little like, bit darker than Eminem, I'll tell you that.
1: You are a honky.
0: But but here's something. That song, or, or that's, <coughs> that saying that I just hit you with, was mm-hmm. one of the first rap songs that came out in 1979. It was one of the first rap songs that I learned when I was growing up in New York city and the song is called the adventures of super rhymes. Uh, Ah. it's, it's about a 17 minute song and it takes you through different, uh, stories of this rapper. And, uh, it's really kind of interesting. So actually I was a, I was a rock and roll guy. The girl I was dating back then was a disco girl and she bet me whatever it was that I couldn't learn the words to that song. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Too sweet to be sour. The ladies know I have the power.
0: You go, girl. There you go, man. There you go.
1: So, Kelly, you know, I think that
0: uh, we've kind of missed our clinical issues there for a few weeks, and I think today we're going to dedicate our show to the clinical issue. And uh, why don't you go ahead and let the uh, folks out there know what we're going to talk about?
1: I think we we should discuss pre-hospital ultrasound. Is it is it useful? Is it an expensive boondoggle? Is it a a, a solution in search of a problem? Um, and we'll uh, we'll get into it. Discuss what you think.
0: Yeah. So I, I think that this is going to be really interesting. Now, one of the things that as we start to grow as a career field, we're starting to see more and more diagnostic uh, equipment uh-huh. in the field. We're starting to really kind of come into our own definition of EMS now you know as well as I do Kelly over the past couple decades anything that we've ever wanted it seemed that it always has has come out of the hospital and we've waited for them to say hey EMS why don't you try this but then mm-hmm. over the past uh, six or seven years, we've now started to see a transition with things like capnography. We've started to see a transition into, into these other diagnostic tools that we're using in the field uh-huh. that now the tail is starting to wag the dog. And EMS is really starting to say, you know what? We're not bound by any specific uh, product that they're using in the hospital, and we certainly can use this in our own career fields. And yeah. I'd be interested to know what you, what you think about that.
1: Well, you know, I've long said, I've said it here in the podcast, I've said it in my writing, that uh, uh, EMS as a profession tends to favor doodads over education, and and I was kind of, uh, I won't say anti-technology, but I was I was highly skeptical of many of the new devices, um, you know, aimed at pre-hospital care because I, I and I still believe this that the device manufacturers know their target market very well, and they know that if you can sell uh, an EMS system, uh, a cool new toy, uh, they'll much favor that over increasing educational standards. Um, so we have a whole bunch of uh, new toys coming onto the market uh, and still lag behind in, in, the, uh, in the critical thinking on, on how to apply the results of those new toys. But I'm coming around because I'm, I honestly, you know, I don't think it, you can be wrong by knowing more about your patient and knowing more about, uh, what's going on inside. Um, so I'm kind of warming up to video laryngoscopy and, and it looks like, uh, given all the, the potential uses of pre-hospital ultrasound, particularly if we can get the price down to where it's, uh, affordable. Um, and, and we're almost there at this point. Uh, this looks like it might be one of the, uh, this looks like it may be the, the next big wave of, of diagnostics and, uh, has the potential to really transform the way we assess and, and treat patients in the field
0: so are, are you uh, um, do you think that this is a good move for us to move that EMS should move to using ultrasound in the field
1: yeah yeah I think so uh, yeah I'll, I'll confess that the my knowledge of ultrasound and until recent weeks has been limited to uh, you know the the benefits of a, a fast exam uh, the pre-hospital focused abdominal uh, sonography for trauma, um, and and how we could use it to at least uh, rule out uh, free abdominal fluid, uh, and and potentially triage our patients to uh, more appropriate receiving facilities. But there are uh, a great deal of other potential uses of this, and and once again, I'll I'll emphasize: ultrasonography winds up being affordable. Uh, then it's going to be an excellent tool to use. And, and like anything else, uh, technology related, the more it is, uh, the more in demand it is, the more the, the price comes down, actually. Uh, you remember when, you know, video laryngoscopes were thousands and thousands of dollars. Yeah, like 20,
0: they were like 20,000 when they first yeah, came yeah.
1: out. Yeah, yeah. Now you can get a, you can, I was playing with some cool video laryngoscopes that, you know, initial setup is a, a thousand dollars, and then you 16, 17 dollars per patient. Uh, on these devices. And, uh, you know, once upon a time, you used to buy computer printers for several hundred dollars, and now they darn near give the printers away uh, so that they can... Uh, they milk can it,
0: milk you on the cartridges. Man. Yeah.
1: Well, and, and uh, <clears throat> you know, glucose meters were the same way. Um, I see no reason why things like um, diagnostic uh, tools like uh, ultrasound devices... Uh, won't come down on the price as well. Of course, obviously, something as sophisticated as ultrasound, you're not going to get it down to the price of a of a glucose meter or a or a computer printer. But um, uh, as a capital investment uh, for for many EMS systems, I think uh, we're not far from making it doable right now, uh, uh, if it's not already doable.
0: Well, certainly, I think that that's an interesting thought. And, you know, I kind of take a little bit different spin to this. Uh Now, I'm all about um, growing the career field. I'm all about the responsibilities of the paramedic. I'm just not all about these bells and whistles. And and maybe, Uh you know, as I I thought about this topic, Kelly, as we were going to talk about it, I I really kind of came up with a thought. Are are you now being a, a dinosaur? Are you now being an old school medic? that you're not looking at the future to say that uh, this is something that could benefit our career field. But I got to tell you, I really don't know what place ultrasound in the field has on our uh, throughout our daily responsibilities, and uh, I re- really would like maybe even have a little debate with you about it before we sure. get into some of the you know some of the uh, uh, clinical applications for ultrasound in the field and and this doesn 't mean that i don 't eventually come around and say that we need to put these on every single truck, but right now, I think the work that we have to do we may I'm for even paring down the equipment that we keep on the ambulance rather than adding more things that are, are not going to give us the opportunity to treat the patients differently. And I think that ultrasound is one of those diagnostic tools that I'm not sure changes the way I'm able to treat a patient when I have this information. You know, And uh, so I, I'm interested to know what you think about that.
1: Well, let me ask you this, Chris. Um your experience free hospital what what was the majority, what setting was the majority of that experience in? Was it urban, suburban, rural, or super rural, or or what most of your stuff was, was done in a city, right?
0: Yeah, I did have I did have a brief stint um of a couple years doing some rural EMS. And certainly in those areas, I think that you have an opportunity to Uh uh, have patients in your ambulances for one, two, two and a half, three hours of transport time. But even if you did, even if you were in a rural setting, how does this help you change your focus of treatment? Well, oh. I, I, wait a minute. Hang on a second. Okay. I, I'm, I'm getting away from your question. So that, that's the answer to my question is I've had a couple years in the rural area, but okay. mostly I've been in the, in the urban areas, yes.
1: I see it being extremely beneficial to the rural providers because, as you know, um, your experience in urban EMS, uh, even advanced life support in general is not as necessary in urban EMS uh, as it is a rural and super rural Uh, I'm not saying that paramedics are useless in a city. I'm saying that when you can point yourself at any compass point, throw a rock and hit a hospital, um, the number and volume of of advanced life support procedures you do kind of diminishes somewhat or the value of them diminishes a little bit. Um, Because you can give the patient a diesel bolus and get them to definitive care much quicker. Whereas a little further time assessing, stabilizing, packaging a patient. In the rural setting, is going to be time well spent when you're going to have the patient by yourself for the next thirty minutes to an hour, or well over. Um, and I think pre-hospital ultrasound will fall under that same uh, thing because when you're in, say, a super rural or frontier environment, and you're in Presidio, Texas, and the nearest trauma center is is uh, two hours away, or um, you can you can make a, a more intelligent decision about where the patient needs to go uh, and perhaps go to a smaller, more uh, closer hospital, um, and uh, pre-hospital ultrasound will help you make that decision. know, Wait a second, okay. wait a go second, wait a second, wait a second.
0: So let's go back to this, just this last comment you just said. Okay. So if you make the, so uh, give me a scenario here of a patient that you may want to use ultrasound on that you have to take two hours away to a uh, maybe a trauma center or, or a, a, you know a higher level of care type of uh, uh, type of hospital.
1: Okay well, first of all trauma center triage criteria is it's the criteria are built on uh, or the, the criteria uh, factor in massive amounts of over triage. Uh, they would rather that we send many people to them that don't necessarily need their specialized care rather than miss one or two that does. Uh, and I think the reason that over-triage factor is built in is because they recognize the, the austerity of the pre-hospital environment and our lack of diagnostic uh, tools and acumen. Uh, so, you know, back in the day, you saw us triaging people to trauma centers based on mechanism of injury uh, and a few anatomical and physiologic criteria. And now that mechanism of injury has proven to be a, a fairly poor predictor of actual injury, um, the shift in, in triage criteria has shifted more toward uh, actual physical findings. Now imagine this. Say um, if you had a patient with an abdominal injury, uh, uh, you think you might have a, a hot belly on your hand or the patient's complaining of some vague abdominal pain and, and it's, it's kind of iffy whether it's a surgical abdomen or not. A fast exam may show the presence of free fluid or not. But, uh, and if there's free blood in the abdomen, you know, the patient's obviously going to need to go to that trauma center and get a, a exploratory surgery, corrective, uh, corrective surgery to, to stabilize uh, that injury. Whereas uh, a patient that doesn't have those ultrasound, uh, ultrasound findings uh, could potentially go to a smaller but still capable hospital. Uh, for non-surgical management of their injuries, now, that's but one example, and there are plenty of others. I'm just using the fast exam as as, sure. uh, as fuel for my argument. And I but think there that are that... plenty of other applications in 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 cardiac resuscitation, IV uh, IV placement. Um,
0: well, uh, hang on, let's 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 go get to those. Okay, but, uh, let's go ahead and use this one first with the hot belly. So, okay, you know somebody has an injury and. Uh, you know, we're in the field. We've got a hospital that we would respond to or that we would take the patient to. Hopefully, that's a little bit locally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we start to talk about those bigger transport times of getting to higher levels of care, that's where those are going to come in. But there should be a local hospital or somebody that we're able to bring patients to locally. Now, in the case of someone that's having a hot belly, and depending on what the injury is, is depending Uh on the amount of blood that's going to be put into the abdominal cavity, is this a patient that we truly want to put in an ambulance and drive two hours to get them to definitive care? I don't think we'll have a viable patient by the time they get there. If we're going to take them to the local hospital, and then the determination is made with the equipment they have there that there's a hot belly, isn't it easier to get an, a, a helicopter in there and fly them back than it is now to take them by ground over two hours, three hours to a trauma center? So uh, I think now the thought for me is, and I'm not saying you're wrong, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and that's that's a switch because usually you are, but I, uh, I think. Uh, uh. I think that one of the things that you have here now is you have, are we delaying definitive care because of a new piece of equipment that says they've got a hot belly, there's blood in the abdomen, we need to take them to surgery at a trauma center two hours away, whereas we could take them to a a place that has definitive care, a higher level of care than we are, and then they can fly them to the trauma center if that's warranted. If the the weather holds up, if uh, that's the opportunity that the patient needs to get you know, feeling better. So again, now I don't want this piece of equipment to change the structure of how we would deliver care in the field.
1: Well, I, I, two quibbles with, uh, with that. Uh, oh, let uh, me oh. hear them
0: quibbles. Give me them quibbles.
1: <laughs> um, uh, first of all, your, your definition of, uh, definitive care and, and rural hospital, uh, don't often, uh, meet in the same sense. Did I say
0: definitive um, or higher level?
1: Uh, you said defended. Oh, did I? Okay, uh, I okay. meant higher level. Then so uh, you are right. Quite a few of these rural hospitals have very limited capability, but you will find some small regional hospitals that have some general surgery capability. There are plenty of them out there. They're not band aid stations, but still not level one trauma centers. But there's also this: How many times have we decried the use, the overuse of of uh, air medical helicopters? Uh, based on things on dubious criteria, uh, including um, getting a unit back into service quicker, we've we've decried that every time a oh, helicopter right. yeah. crashes, every time one goes down. I'm with you man. Uh, for 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 you know hauling a patient that could have gone by ground. We call that sort of behavior out. Right, but that is a reality in many rural EMS systems. is, is quite a few of them will will fly a patient. Um, uh, and the underlying reasons, so they can turn their unit and get back into service quicker. Uh, but they also justify it by saying, uh, "Well, you know, we don't know what's going on inside, and the quicker that patient gets to a trauma center, the better." Well, what's to say that that something knowing more about your patient won't reduce the overuse of those helicopters, um, uh, or the helicopter may the helicopter crew may have uh, uh, ultrasound capability and, and be able to to uh, decide which particular specialty hospital the patient needs to go to.
0: So, But let me ask you this. I mean, so going, even going back to the helicopter, that the helicopter may have the mm-hmm. ultrasound you know, as, a, as their piece of equipment, what does it change? What does it allow you to do? And, and now we're just talking about the hot belly. And, and there are things that we're going to talk about here, I think, that there may be some value in, but how does it change how you're treating the patient in route to definitive care?
1: Well, I'm glad you asked that because <laughs> you're you're still you're still looking at ultrasound as a uh, solely as a, a diagnostic tool for transport criteria, and while that is probably the low hanging fruit and that's the easiest thing uh, to use ultrasound for is to to guide your transport destination based on things like the fast exam, there are a number of other uh, useful, uh, clinical uses for ultrasound. There's, uh, for example, uh, detection of tube placement. Uh, you get an endotracheal tube in, and I know that waveform capnography, quantitative waveform capnography is still the gold standard, but even it has its limitations, particularly in low flow and low perfusion states. Uh, you, you may not get a, a tube, uh, the patient may be, uh, perfusing so poorly, they're just simply not putting up out enough carbon dioxide to really uh, to really detect. There's no um, better
0: way. there's no better way to determine if you've intubated correctly than watching the tube go through the Oh
1: cords. horse manure no, 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 no. Horse manure. I mean every time Stop if I had it. Stop a it, for Grayson. every person who tubed the goose who said, I saw it go through the cords uh, so then I'd be you a wealthy saw
0: it. You know what, though? Uh, Here's the realization. The realization is, the I, realization I, is if I, you yeah. don't see the tube go through the cords, you've not intubated. And the people who say, I saw it go through the cords, are people that need to work on their intubation skills. But that's, that's not what we're chatting that, about you now.
1: Just you just described a huge segment of the EMS workforce. But, I,
0: but exactly. you, we're here but, talking about best practices now. We're talking about well, best practices.
1: Well, once again, I would say that. That plenty of people who have relied on their eyeballs over the technology uh, have been burned. I agree.
0: I agree. Yep. I've seen it. I've so, talked to people. But here's the thing as well: are, are you saying that in the absence, or, or let me go ahead and rephrase? Uh, strike that, please. Strike that, uh, Your Honor. So, if are you talking about the use of ultrasound to determine tube placement rather than one watching the tube go through, watching the tube? actually go through the cords and using capnography, which I feel in my opinion, I've said this and it's not transpired this way yet. We're eventually going to move from the day that we use stethoscope placement to verify the tube is in the right spot and we're just going to use and we're just going to use capnography to do that because there's no better tool to figure that out
1: or or we'll use a a video of the tube actually passing between the both which is another thing which that we should talk about
0: because i don't agree with that either
1: but well but are you saying to use well, ultrasound well, as part well, of that well, now we're, uh, we're in steps okay. we're in steps as, kelly as part of that the volume uh the volume of diagnostic criteria you can get to confirm tube placement is the important thing, not any one particular tool, because if you talk about any method of confirming tube placement, uh, an astute person can poke holes in that one method. You know, uh, capnography, what if it's low flow states? What if uh, uh, the patient's just not putting out CO2? Uh, You're going to have false negatives. Uh, Do you pull a tube based on that? What about tube... Uh, tube fogging? What about breath sounds? What about presence or absence of epigastric sounds? What about uh, watching the tube go through the cords? Or did the person intubating actually know what cords look like? Apparently not in many cases. Um, Any one diagnostic tool to confirm tube placement has its flaws. But uh, in the absence of, of reliable diagnostic criteria elsewhere, something like sonography, might be beneficial but here let me let me let me guide you toward another one what about well, hang on something? before you do that
0: okay. i i do want to touch on a component okay. that you said that anytime i have the opportunity to bring this up i always love to do this you talked about uh and the goose and um you know do i need to pull the tube and try intubation again if you ever think that you've tubed the esophagus, never pull the tube. There's only, right. there's only one more place to go. So try to intubate around that first tube and get it where it needs to go because if you pull it because you think you're in the esophagus and you try to intubate again, there's a 50-50 shot. You're going to go right back into the same place. Right. So never pull it. Always try to intubate around it. Go ahead. What else you got well, for me?
1: I will, I will, I will uh, add a caveat to what you just said. I agree with you. Uh, and I think if your patient is properly pre-oxygenated prior to the intubation attempt, the extra time spent uh, tubing around it uh, is not going to hurt the patient. However, if you are sufficiently stupid and sufficiently determined, you can get several tubes down an esophagus. I have seen that happen. I have seen people with two tubes in an esophagus and three tubes in an esophagus. Never my patients. Never my patients but you can fit several of them down there if you just keep doing the same thing over and over expecting a different result. But in those instances where you accidentally tube the goose, uh, what that leaving that first tube in place does one thing that you didn't have before. Now you have the esophagus identified, right. <laughs> you know, so you can look for an empty hole that doesn't have a tube in it and, and try for that one. If your land, if your visualization or your recognition landmarks is so poor, um, then, then that it helps in that regard.
0: Yeah, let's so let's go ahead and switch gears here a little bit because you know you have your feeling about it, I have my feeling uh-huh. about it. For the people who are out there though that don't know a lot about it, let's talk about some of the the real clinical applications for field ultrasound and and uh, you know a couple of them here are you already mentioned it some of the causes of dyspnea recognizing OB emergencies, uh, cardiac evaluation, and resuscitation. I mean, so, and I know that there's a few more, but when you think about those three right there, how is this now going to help the field provider in delivering uh, uh, the highest quality of patient care?
1: Okay, well, let's, let's just take a cardiac evaluation and resuscitation. Okay. Um, the, the field exam, they call it, uh, focused echocardiographic evaluation and life support uh, is is the name for the exam that you you do in cardiac resuscitation, among other things. It can uh, show evidence of ventricular wall movement when the ECG shows otherwise asystole. Um, uh, and this is this has been a well known thing. Echocardiograms have uh, uh, in hospitals. They've used echocardiograms to to determine wall movement and CPR uh, before and determine whether the patient was actually in actual asystole or if they were in VFib fib to find to recognize or VFib in which the the electrical vector the electrical axis uh was away from the leads you were viewing uh you know back in the day that's why we 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 always confirmed asystole in three leads uh just so that we knew that um that the electrical axis wasn't uh wasn't just um conducting electricity uh, in a horizontal plane away from what we're actually viewing. Right. And it looks like asystole, but in actuality, it's V-fib. Well, sonography helps that as well. Um, you can determine wall movement. Uh, and in determining wall movement and and in the presence of what the ECG shows is asystole, and start guiding your, your treatment toward V-fib and, and pulses VTAC instead of uh, the standard asystole treatment, uh, there, there's evidence to show that that at least survival to hospital admission and ROSC uh, is improved by by that technique. Uh, right. There's some data that they cite there that that uh, outcomes improve at least that short term outcome only, and you can't have the long term one until you have the short term one. So uh, there's there's one possible uh, use. Uh, there's also uh, in the causes of dyspnea. We're talking about. Um, accuracy of diagnosing pulmonary edema versus COPD uh, and that sort of thing, or uh, determining um, a pneumothorax uh, when your ears and the stethoscope aren't sufficient. Uh, you you do uh, a chest ultrasound and you look for a particular thing called lung sliding sign uh, and it's pleural sliding uh, with chest wall movement. Um, and that is usually absent in a pneumothorax. So with just a, a, a exam that lasts just a, a few seconds, you can you can assess for that and more accurately determine whether the patient needs a needle or a, a chest tube. You know, using it to determine whether a, a pneumothorax is indeed present or not, uh, it seems to be more accurate than simple uh, stethoscopy. So that's that's yet another benefit of it.
0: Right, and and there are a couple others. You know, the the uses that. Uh other uses are fracture determination, mm-hmm. uh, pre-hospital uh, needle thoracostomy placement. Uh, people are using it for peripheral IV, uh, IV access. Uh, some people are using it for stroke diagnosis. So, you know, Kelly, talk to me about, you know, because the question I have through all this is the time it's going to take to utilize this tool compared to using what we've used for years. So when we talk about, you know, COPD versus CHF, is, is this really gone by the way of the stethoscope that it's not that good of a tool that we need to now go into another cabinet, take out this device, set it up, put it on the patient, do what we need to do with landmarks, and now we have to interpret what's going on? I mean, so is this now adding time? Is this now adding steps to the, the treatments that
1: we've been given for years? If you're doing these, if you're doing the exam poorly and you're unpracticed at it, yes, probably does. But like anything else, like any new skill, the more we practice it, the smoother we get at it, and the 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 quicker we can apply it. Uh, and I'll tell you, you know, about using your stethoscope. You know, all, auscultation is becoming a lost art, uh, not just in pre-hospital care, but but in hospitals where they have a great deal more resources than we do. Uh, you know, the, the stethoscope is is maybe a relic of the past within the next generation because of so much more accurate uh, diagnostic tools uh, are available than your ears. Um, now, we have always said, well, we're going to need these things because we don't have all those cool things. Um, but what if we did have all those cool things? Right. What if we did have this technology to allow us to be every bit as... As accurate in our diagnostics uh, as the emergency department, right? Um, and and this is you know, uh, once again with the caveat that if it can be affordable, um, I see it has has huge potential. Sure. Um, well, let me so ask there, you: <clears throat> we're 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 also looking at, at you know uh, cardiac monitors in the future are probably going to start integrating this sort of thing. Uh, Physio control has a agreement with Sonocyte, one of the ultrasound manufacturers, to incorporate uh, ultrasonography uh, into their future cardiac monitors. So you never know. You may see the LifePak 18 or whatever Medtronic wants to call it uh, have a uh, module with an ultrasound built in, and you can just, you know, gel up your your probe and, and, and ultrasound somebody uh within just a few seconds of arriving right. bedside.
0: Ultrasound the heck out of him. So let me ask you this. I mean, <laughs> let me give you, one of the things that I don't like about doing the show is you always get the last word. So <laughs> uh, but this is where we are. We've come to the end of the show and I'm going to give you the last word. So, uh, you know, I think that, you know, I have that uh, old dinosaur mentality that uh, we need to take tools off rather than put tools on. Certainly, this is a side that you're leaning towards to say, I think that there's an opportunity for success. I'm going to ask you this final question before you give us the closing is, what do you think the future direction is for this particular device for our career field?
1: Well, I see one, one potential use for it uh, in the future. Uh, if the technology improves uh, or our, our use of the technology improves, uh, both those things will be necessary. We could potentially be using ultrasound to diagnose ischemic stroke in the field. Um, I remember year, uh, reading years ago about uh, University of Ohio was coming up, was trying to invent an ultrasound helmet. You know, this you, you just put on a patient's head and... and, and scan them uh, and, and determine if there was an ischemic stroke or, or lack of cerebral blood flow or, or whatever, um, uh, as potential emerging technology for, for, you know, doing that very thing, shortening the door to thrombolysis time uh, for ischemic stroke. Um, now that these devices, are, there's no ultrasound helmet that I know of, but now that the, this technology is improving, becoming more affordable. And our, our, our adeptness with it, uh, our aptitude with it is, is improving. The more EMS systems start to, uh, uh, to use it, uh, the more likely we are to discover new uses for it. Um, maybe stroke be the next thing that we we're using ultrasound for. And potentially, uh, think, of, think of what would be a more cost-effective way of, of pre-hospitally diagnosing and treating stroke. Uh, compared to something that's in the news right now. Uh, Do you need a multi-million dollar humongous ambulance with a poorly uh, uh, accurate CT scanner, a rough CT scanner built into the back of it, uh, or just a few thousand dollar ultrasound machine to determine the same thing? But hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. Is ultrasound a solution in search of a problem, or is it the next big thing in pre-hospital care and diagnostics. We'd like to hear your thoughts. So email us at theshow at ems1.com. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. And for myself and co-host and frequently wrong, Chris Ciballero, this is Kelly Grace, and thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch y'all next week.
0: Last word fiend.